someone knocks on your door and hits you with a writ, which is claiming for the loss of someone's life, or you've put a passenger in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and he's got three kids, etc., and they start claiming millions of dollars against you. Now, this is something that the average pilot doesn't think about. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 63 of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. To get in contact with me, my email is dan at thatmallardguy.com or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thatmallardguy. Shout out to the Australian Seaplane Pilots Association who are holding their first social event of the year today, the 19th of February at Rathmines on Lake Macquarie in New South Wales. The event is to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the SPAA. So congratulations, everyone. I really wish I could have been down there for the event. I hope you all have a wonderful day on the Catalina Ramp down there. Such a lovely place to fly seaplanes, that's for sure. Just a reminder to those Aussie pilots out there, both seaplane and non-seaplane, that membership of the SPAA is only... $25 per year. That is less than a palmy. And they're a volunteer-based organization who run events like these to represent seaplane pilots and flying in general. So get on board and show your support for the industry, folks. And those overseas, don't feel left out. You can certainly throw some cash down under if you wish. Great stuff, guys. Now, if you love this podcast, folks, and you want to see it grow, you can certainly do that by becoming a patron if you want. Leave me an Apple Podcast five-star written review or now a Spotify five-star rating. All of those certainly go a long way to continuing on the step into the future. So thank you very much. Today, folks, I have a very special guest to talk about something I certainly didn't know much about until recently. Ian Tate is well-known and very highly regarded in Australia as the go-to man for aviation insurance. His company, Aviation Insurance Australia, is the country's leading independent aviation insurance agency, providing specialist insurance assistance to a wide range of aviation clients. Ian discusses how insurance works and specifically insurance in the seaplane world. It's a conversation a little bit different than normal, but I'm sure you will all learn something new, just as I certainly did. Let's call our trusted aviation insurance broker. Discussing a wide range of options for liability and hull coverage, we'll pick a plan that suits us, ensuring we cover all bases. With the policy at rest in our document folder, we will sleep easy tonight knowing that we are financially safe. For when we get up, and on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. All right, welcome to On the Step, Mr. Ian Tate, the Managing Director of Aviation Insurance Australia. How are you going, Ian? I'm well, thank you, Dan. That's good. You all calm down, mate, after our um, amazing experience dealing with uh, the fun issues that you get with technology trying to meet up online are you, uh, yeah, technology, <laughs> wound up, are you? technology technology <laughs> it's fantastic when it works yeah uh it's uh it's we've been a 
trying to organise this interview for a while now, and um, I thought I might have lost you trying to set up this uh, this chat through uh, Skype. I have to use Skype for my recorders that I do, but mate, we're here. We're finally able to to, to talk a different topic, something a little bit different that I don't normally discuss on the show, and that is um, a bit of insurance. So um, I'm actually looking forward to this. I'm going to learn a lot. I reckon I, I still probably don't understand it very well, even though we've had multiple conversations on the phone where I'm pretty sure you've almost uh, started at the the beginning of time with insurance when you're trying to explain this stuff to me. But uh, it's a topic that uh, I find can be a little bit confusing at times. But before we jump into that, Ian, I normally get people to kind of talk about their background. So why don't you tell us about how you got into flying and, and how you got into insurance as well? Well, I suppose with flying, it's like everyone, how we all got into flying. It's, it's just a passion that you have. And you probably had it from a very young age where you got your parents to take you to the airport. You'd spend afternoons just watching planes and helicopters flying around and and hopefully one day that will be you. And uh, that's exactly what happened and that's how I got into flying. You're a Brisbane boy originally, are you? Uh, Brisbane born and bred. You started, you know, learning to fly down there when you were young? Yeah, I did. I started, uh, this is where I start to, I suppose, um, show my age. I started to fly in 1975 after I finished senior. In fact, uh, I wanted to become an air traffic controller. So while I had chemistry and maths, I didn't have physics. So uh, I went back to school to uh, get physics, got a job, um, applied actually for four jobs, five jobs, uh, they are all offered to me at the time, and uh, I took the one from the Bank of New South Wales, as it was then, purely because they were the one who was paying the biggest annual salary. Um, yeah. And all those funds just went straight into learning to fly. Oh, okay. Uh, so you used those first jobs as a way of, of earning money to be able to get your license. And, and that's exactly what I did. So when I was working in the bank, um, I was learning to fly. Um, and as I said, I finished senior, and by the time I finished senior and uh, got the physics that I needed to join and to um, become an air traffic controller, um, I realised from all my flying that people don't really like air traffic controls. So I thought that wouldn't be a very good career move. So um, I stuck with the flying, um, got the old restricted as it was then, and uh, got uh, my private. And um, during the uh, studying for my commercial subjects, which at that point was all done by correspondence, I sort of fell into insurance. Yeah, tell us about that. Like, um, was that ever something that you thought would be a career option working in insurance or how did that fall onto your lap? Well, I suppose it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time is that um, the bank... I'd been with the bank for a couple of years and you get to the point where they like to transfer you out into the country. So uh, my uncle, who was the head of AGC um, back then, just said he happened to know of a a multinational insurance broking company that was after a trainee aviation insurance broker. And I said, well, I don't know anything about insurance, but if it's to do with aviation, it's got to be better than the bank. So um, I applied for the job and they gave it to me. What did that involve, that, that initial work that you were doing? Um, 
basically that is the boring part of the job where you start right at the bottom and you start to understand what insurance is about, um, applying you know, Bush lawyer sort of stuff to it, and yeah, Dan, just go from there. So I started with a company called Manettes, um, and while I was there, I also did my commercial licence with a view to that would be a stepping stone as a career path into aviation. But things didn't quite go that way. Um, I got my commercial licence, but where I sort of sat in that insurance role, um, I met a lot of very, very interesting people who were running businesses, etc. And that's where I got the interest in the management side of aviation business and um, just how important insurance was to them surviving in that business. I was lucky because um, the person who at the time was the Eastern Australian manager for Rex Aviation approached me and said, listen, I've got these new 172s and 182s. He's entrusted me with a new 206 that has to be delivered to all their customers in country New South Wales and Queensland. And he said, how would you like to deliver these on your days off? And I said, well, mate, I work nine to five. I don't have days off except for the weekends. So I came to an arrangement with uh, my employer that they gave me Fridays off every now and then. And um, yeah, I'd take a spanking brand new 172N model or a 182 and fly it to Charleville, to Longreach, to Raglan, um, to Dubbo, wherever. And uh, the new owner of this aircraft would, would meet me either at their property or, like I said, one of the major towns. Uh, I'd hand him over the keys and he'd put me on a Greyhound or Pioneer bus and send me back to Brisbane. It was a great way of putting hours in the logbooks and it just met a lot of people and saw a lot of the countryside. So I was extremely lucky. At that stage, were you, I mean, you talk about getting hours in the logbook, um, but were you thinking at that stage that you'd stay down the aviation insurance route or was it, was this kind of like a, uh, almost like one of the GA jobs these days where pilots will gain that 1,500 hours before they then go off to the airlines? Ah. Dan, I was at crossroads um, and I enjoyed the flying and I enjoyed the job in insurance and the people that I was interacting with. And it was very difficult to make that decision which way to go. Um, but I decided, well, the pointy end of a, a DC-9 or 727 to me at the time was not what I call a, a flying career. Pays well but that's not flying. Um, as we all know, you know, as soon as you rotate, you hit the autopilot, don't touch it again until you land. Um, and I don't, I don't get the point of that. That's not flying. Um, I've always said to people, the three best flying jobs, I think, in this country are either flying the Mallards for Mr Paspali up and down that west coast, um, flying out of Airlie Beach with all those lovely backpackers in a caravan or somewhere out to the reef, or... Um, a VFR run, milk run down the coast in a dash act with Mr Qantas um, with the reef on one side and uh, the Australian country on the other. It's, it's just magical flying. And to me, that's flying. That's yeah. that's why you want to fly. 
Um, I'm, I'm glad, to, glad to say that I can tick off two of those three, mate. And I've, I've got a mate who does the milk run that you're talking about, and I think he enjoys that as well. So, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, you do it because the passion of fly and the people that you meet. You don't, in aviation, as everyone knows, you don't do it for money. There's no money in aviation. It's just the passion. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, staying at Manette's, um, doing the flying that I was doing. And at the same time, um, I was also mixing it because I had done officer training in the Army Reserve. So that was giving me a bit of money to um, continue my flying career. So when I got my commercial, I then decided to start the senior commercial subjects. Um, where that was going to take me, I had no idea. But while I was young and I uh, was willing to use the brain, that's what I did. Uh, so that was it. But um, Manette's came along and they had bigger ideas for me. So they transferred me to London for 18 months in 1980 and 81. I came back and uh, they then had an, op- an, op- an opening in Johannesburg where they sent me in 1984 for four months and then again in 1985. So seen a bit of the world with this job. Um, understand insurance, having worked in Lloyd's and with some very big um, um, high-falutin players, and I thoroughly enjoyed um, at that point in time. Obviously, my flying came to a halt, but it also gave me the opportunity to go to uh, the Paris Air Show, Farnborough, um, all the flying shows you get around the UK, Biggin Hill, etc. So it, it was it was great. And then when I came back to Australia, um, I get back into the flying um, and I was very fortunate because at that time with two friends of mine, we bought um, a brand new 172, which we had online with people. So that was my first foray into um, aircraft ownership. Did it make, well, actually the first question I have about what you just mentioned there was you you, you talked about going overseas there and and you also said, hey, you kind of stopped flying. I was going to ask, um, did you do any flying over there? So it was literally no flying at all overseas? Um, I, I got a couple of flights um, in um, Southern down at Biggin Hill, again in a 172 um, in a Tiger Moth. And I also did one over at um, the air show in Lyon in um, Paris, just flying around the, the French Alps. Um, oh, it was wow. just, just incredible flying. It got some, but again, at that point in time, the focus was on cementing um, my insurance career with contacts both in the London market and uh, and elsewhere. Yeah, I imagine that would have helped. And then you came back to Australia and eventually, uh, I think in the 90s, uh, uh, you started your own business. Is that correct? Well, in fact, before that, um, what happened um, and the reason why I, I do what I do today is um, the multinationals decided there was a better way of doing things, more automated, etc. And um, this is the way it's going. And I said to them, well, that won't work in aviation because people want to talk aviation. They want hands-on. They want experience. What you're proposing won't work. And they got rather stroppy about it. And I gave them six months. And at the end of the six months, I wasn't happy working in this new multinational conglomerate. So I resigned. 
and came out to Archerfield and started on my own. And fortunately, a lot of my larger clients at the time, um, like Norfolk Island Airlines, Bush Pilot Airways and others, just said, well, if you're going to Archerfield, looks like that's where our new offices are. So I was very lucky. Um, and I did that for three years um, until I was approached by some people may remember the old Australian aviation underwriting pool. They came to me and uh, wanted to make me state manager because they needed a succession plan because all the underwriters they had were getting old. So the same year of the Expo 88 in Brisbane, um, I jumped from being an aviation insurance broker to being an aviation underwriter. And again, that, that was fantastic experience. The underwriting side, understanding what's going on. And I still got to do my flying. But unfortunately, where I saw a career there, they also changed to something which I thought was not, um, how would you say, it, it was not really to the advantage of my clients and aircraft owners. And they wanted to change the way business was being transacted. Um, I said no. And we parted company. And that was in the early 90s. And that's when I came back out to Archerfield and still here today. Yeah, wow. So I want to, this is a bit of a, a funny question because, well, now I want to talk a little bit about aviation insurance in general because I think generally when when you get your pilot's license, pilots these days, this is probably a topic that general pilots don't look at. Now, uh, the people who would look at this obviously are private pilots who are, are aircraft owners and also business owners who who own aircraft and manage aircraft in an actual business. But I think in general, uh, flight crew don't actually have a good understanding of, of how aviation insurance works or just maybe insurance in general. Um, so I want to start at the start, Ian. So how does insurance work? And I mean, you, you've already mentioned a couple of things there, like for example, the term underwriter. What, is, what does that exactly mean and, and, and how does the whole package work? Well, you, you are, Dan, totally correct because when I first jumped in a plane and right up to the time until I started insurance, I never thought about insurance. Um, what's insurance got to do with, with aviation? Uh, and to the point where, you know, you jump in a plane. I'm here to go flying. I don't worry about other things. And if something happens, well, I don't own the plane. It's not my problem. But if I hadn't known then what I know now, well, it might have been totally different. But you are right. Um, people and pilots are just so enthused about to go flying that they don't think of all ramifications and what else could happen. And basically, all insurance is from a aircraft owner's point of view is a transfer of the risk in that you own a, a helicopter or an aircraft and if you damage it, well, you don't have the wherewithal to repair it. So you transfer that risk to an insurance company. And that's basically what all insurance is about. Um, and, and the way you sum it up, it's um, the premium of the, of the many pays for the accidents of the few. 
So the idea from yeah, the, insurance, yeah. the insurance company is to, to generate enough premium into a pot of money that when the aircraft owners and or pilots, et cetera, have accidents, there's a pool of money to help pay the claims. And that's fundamentally what insurance is all about. You think of aviation insurance no different to your motor vehicle. In the fundamentals that, you know, you, you own your car and you've got two options. Probably when you're younger in life um, and you buy your first car, which has cost you two or $3,000, you're not worried about um, the car itself. Um, if, if it, it gets written off or well, you lose $2,000. Um, in fact, I can remember it being a 17 and 18 year old where I had mates who'd used to leave their car keys in the car, hoping that someone would steal it rather than them having to get rid of it, which would be a pain in the butt because um, it was it was just a bucket of bolts. But you always had liability cover, third party, in, in case you ran into that very expensive Mercedes or hit someone on the road or some property, et cetera. And that's fundamentally what you, what you need from insurance is, is that liability cover. And as the risk grows as far as the value of your motor vehicle, or in this case, your aircraft, then you look to, to make insurance. Um, and presently, there are six insurance companies or underwriters in Australia that will underwrite insurance coverage on aircraft. They need to set a premium which will allow them to pay claims as and when they happen to the policies that people have placed with them to cover their aircraft. Yeah, right. Okay. So you mentioned there the t- two things really. That One is the insurance uh, to cover the, the value of the aircraft or the, the asset, I guess. And the second one is there is, is the liability. Looking at some insurance policies in the past, I've noticed that liability cover uh, can be a huge amount of dollars, like $20 million liability cover type thing. Can you explain how how liability cover is different, I guess, in, in a way to the, the aircraft cover? They are two totally separate things and they're handled separately under the policy. Okay. But the aircraft or hull, they call it a hull in aviation, because it used to be insured through the marinos and the marine market, of course, boats, boats are hulls, and it just followed on into aircraft. It just never changed. Um, But the aircraft are what they are. And when I used to do um, courses at the helicopter safety course that Rob Rich used to run some years ago, as I used to try to explain to all the pilots and helicopter owners in the audience, the most crucial thing that you should have as a pilot and or aircraft or helicopter owner is that liability cover. The helicopter or your aircraft, you can see it, you can touch it, you can wash it every weekend if you're so disposed. <laughs> and, it, and it will be have a dollar value on it. depending on what it is. And you can sell it, et cetera, and upgrade and do what you want. But it's the loss of the aircraft or the helicopter, if you don't have it insured, won't be the end of the world. 
what will be the end of your world is when you've had an accident in a helicopter or an aircraft and somewhere in the following years, because it normally takes years, someone knocks on your door and hits you with a writ, which is claiming for the loss of someone's life or you've put a passenger um, in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and he's got three kids, etc., and they start claiming millions of dollars against you. Now, this is something that the average pilot doesn't think about. Um, and that's not such a bad thing. It probably halt a few people's flying careers if they ever thought about it. But the other thing it does is, fortunately, all the aviation insurance policies, the majority of them, will protect a pilot, whether he's an employee or he's hired the aircraft from his local flight club, for such an event. Okay. So if, if I hire um, an aircraft of a reputable flying school or your mate, etc., you would expect that they will have an insurance policy and that insurance policy will extend to cover me as the pilot um, for any liability damage that I may incur up to the limit of the policy. Okay. And most and most policies, as you said, um, I haven't seen too many policies with less than five million. Um, I mean, I have five million on my Piper Cup because I've only got one passenger, um, and I'm a 182. I have ten million dollars. Again, because it's operating out of Archerfield, I got three passengers. So if I have an engine failure cake out of uh, Archerfield, my uh, options are somewhat limited, as opposed to taking off out of Wellcamp, where you've got acres and acres of land to plonker down in. Yeah. So that's what you're looking for. But for anyone, if you have doubts about your mate having insurance, or you use, unfortunately, a disreputable organisation, then you think twice before you jump into that plane. So I guess someone, yeah. So I guess someone who, uh, maybe a student pilot who's going to their first training school, is that? Would you recommend them kind of hitting up that school and say, "Look, can I have a look at your insurance policy and make sure that there is liability covered for future training that I do?" If a student pilot ever does that. I mean, Dan, I'd like to be present because I'd love to see the look on the face of the flying school CT pilot or the girl behind the reception desk. I bet you no one ever asked that question. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, as I said, it's, it's not something you think about. But as I said, the vast majority, and I'm talking about 97% of aircraft owners and operators have got a liability policy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so long as you as a pilot, a, that you know, your licence is current, um, you, you've got a current medical, you've done your BFR, uh, you're not drunk, left over from the night before, um, that policy is going to cover you and, and that's all the peace of mind you need. Yeah, right. Um, you know, whether you want to ask them, you know, what sort of liability cover have you got? Well, unless you really know what you're asking for, you're going to take them on face value anyhow. Yeah, true. 
Now, you mentioned there before about uh, the actual hull uh, policy and, and the, the premium. And you talked about how a premium is created basically on that, you know, if there's a heap of people owning 172s for flight training, for example, uh, the, there will be a premium for that type of work that, that is underdone. Is that the same as liability? Like, is the premium for liability enough to cover like a $10 million situation? I would have thought that, or does that not occur that often where, where people are claiming up to $10 million to, to make that premium stay low, if that makes sense? It is. Um, and when people say to me, how much liability cover do I have? Um, the, the answer I give to protect my backside is you take as much as you can comfortably afford. Yeah. But, but if you benchmark and be a realist, as I said, I've got $10 million on my 182 and I have $5 million on my cub. Yeah. Um, and I'm comfortable with those limits um, given the current accident rates and what sort of accidents you're having in Australia. Also looking at the liability settlements that the courts in Australia are currently handing out. This is not America. This is not where you get you know, a payout of $400 million because you use glyphosate to kill your weeds at home. I mean, let, let's get sensible here. Yeah. Um, so th- that's that's the answer. I well, mean, yeah, well, I guess maybe the, the question was not really well worded, but um, my, my question probably is more like if, if there was, say, 10 accidents in Australia, how many of those, t- which are all claims to... Uh, fully, uh, you know, write off that aircraft. How many of those ten accidents would use a full ten million dollars of liability if they all had ten million dollars liability insurance? Do you know what I mean? Oh, probably none. Exactly. Yeah. So that's yeah. why that the, the ten million dollars might cost you X amount, which is the scale of ten million for that premium for liability cover is a lot uh, larger versus the scale of premium for uh, the hull. Um, coverage is that's what I'm trying. In to... fact, I know, in fact, it's the exact opposite. Um, the cheapest part of your insurance premium covering your aircraft and your liabilities is the liability component. Yeah. Um, it's the actual aircraft component yep. that costs you the most because that's where all the accidents are. That's where it's expensive repairs, as we all know, trying to get parts out of America and just the availability and the cost. So that's what costs you the most is actually insuring your aircraft, yeah, not so, the liabilities. Yeah. So it's, it's more like, you know, like the 172 example. Um, you know, 172 gets um, written off because of a training accident. Both pilots walk away and there's no liability claim because everyone's okay. And it, it hit a tree on an airport. So... Uh, that you know the tree can't sue you, but um, everyone's fine. We all walk away. Uh, the plane's written off, so we need to cover the cost of that. But liability-wise, there's no no issue. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Correct. I'm starting to figure it out, Ian. I'm feeling good. Third day. <laughs> remember, there's an exam at the end. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm supposed to tell you. Um, <laughs> now, pilot liability. This is another topic, uh, and you know, I'm just in the process currently of, of dealing with uh, looking at some liability insurance myself as a, as a new instructor with, with the seaplane training that I'm doing as well. And on your website, you've got there um, 
you know, pilots' loss of license insurance and also uh, pilot indemnity insurance. Can you give us a bit of a insight of what they are in and how they're different to the liability cover, I guess, when you take out the 172 from the flight school that we talk, talked about before? All right. Let's use the 172 as an example. So you, you've hired your 172 and you're going to take your two good friends out for a flight, you know, whether you're going to go from Archfield and go fly at Morton Island or you're going to take it from Alice Springs and fly around and look at the scenery around at Alice Springs. The, you take off in the aircraft as the pilot in command with your two passengers. And somewhere along the, the flight, you have uh, an engine issue and whatever you do, you can't get it restarted. You've got oil all over the cowl, etc. So you're going down. The forced landing's not a particularly better one and you end up with a, a fractured pelvis. Um, one of your passengers has got a broken arm and the other one's got a few scratch and bruises. So what they find out is after the accident is that yeah, you're a bit careless in your um, pre-flight and you didn't do the um, oil dipstick cover up too tight. So it's come out and there's where all the oil's gone. So it's basically your fault. So you've now got a situation where the aircraft is damaged, but it's an accident. You don't deliberately not do up the, the dipstick. So the insurance company paid the claim and the Aero Club get the amount of money that it's insured for. And that matter is put to rest. If the insurance company thought that this happens so, so infrequently that, you know, you didn't have a, a BFR or you were, you were drunk or something like that. Now, I mean, I'm going really to the sublime here. Then they could, they could then sue you as the pilot for the damage to the aircraft. But once again, um, I'm only aware of three occasions where that's happened in the last 35 years. Yeah, right. So it does. It just doesn't happen. So it's nothing to be concerned about. So yeah. forget about the aircraft. The Aero Club got their money and they're going to go buy another 172. Down the track, there will be a court case because you've got someone with a broken arm so severely that he can't do his job as a physiotherapist anymore. And the, the other part, another passenger who um, is injured, all those cuts and bruises, she was a runway model and the face doesn't look as good as it used to. So she'll be after some money for lost income, etc. So they will sue you as the pilot because it's clearly your fault. And the insurance policy covering that aircraft extends to cover the pilot for any liability that he may incur as a result of his actions up to the limit of the policy. So there will be court proceedings and the, the, the runway model might, might get $100,000, $200,000. And the physio, because he's lost his job and has to be retrained, et cetera, he may get $600,000. I, I have no idea. Yeah. 
But, but that'll be adequately covered by the five million dollars cover that was on the that was on the one seven two that the club had. But then we come back to the pilot and the liability, pilot's liability has been covered off on the two passengers, but there is no cover for the pilot. None at all. The only way that pilot would have any cover is if there was workers' compensation. And clearly in this case, there is no workers' compensation because he's hired it to take his two friends for a jolly around Kings Canyon or Stanley Chasm or somewhere like that. So this is where pilots, it is no different to grabbing your surfboard off your roof and going in for a catch a wave and losing your leg to a shark, the responsibility rests with the pilot to have appropriate personal accident insurance or death cover or whatever's out there, which has got nothing to do with aviation. But like I said, it's no different. It could be bike racing, your BMX, you know, and you go plough head into a tree and suddenly you're a paraplegic. There's no one to sue. You can't sue anyone for that. It's your own fault. So you need to take the appropriate action um, and put things in place. You've got some sort of level of income protection or whatever it may be. But that's one thing that, I mean, Dan, I certainly wasn't aware of when I started to learn to fly and I never ever thought about it. Yeah. You know, we're, all, we're all full of testosterone. Well, the boys are. Um, and, you know, we're, we're indestructible. We're out there flying. We're pilots. You know, we're great. But there is no cover. There is no cover. Um, the aircraft owner will have protection against the passengers because they will sue him as well because he holds the policy. And even the case that, let's say, the owner of the aircraft had done something, and I can't even think of an example, had done something wrong that caused the accident and the pilot was injured, and the pilot could then sue the aircraft owner, but that's protection for the aircraft owner. And if the aircraft owner hasn't done anything wrong and it's purely one of those things, then that's the responsibility of the pilot to have the cover. And and then likewise with your passenger, in that case we've just gone through, it was the pilot's fault, clearly the pilot's fault. Yeah. But let's say on the same flight that, that, that you're flying around in the middle of Australia and you have a nice big wedge tail eagle come through that windscreen and smack your poor runway model in the face, well, that's not anyone's fault. That's just an act of nature. Go find the dead eagle and sue the dead eagle if you want. But if you, but if again, if you don't have the appropriate travel insurance or, or something else, then there's no one to sue. There is no liability. And yeah. if there's no liability, then you're responsible for whatever happens to yourself. And as I said, in the case of the eagle, there is no responsibility. Uh, that's just how it is. Yeah. And you mentioned work cover there. And so most, uh, I think it's in the pilot award, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't been really scouring through the pilot award much lately, but a company should generally cover a pilot's loss of uh, license insurance. Is that correct? Uh, no, that's not correct. Okay. Um, I was wrong. 
no, 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 not at all. You're close, but you're not correct. Um, I employ er regardless whether it's aviation, transport, marine, um, hospitality, is required to hold a workers' compensation policy or the equivalent to cover the employee in case the employee is injured at work. That, no matter where you are in Australia, that's just taken for granted. There is also um, a requirement for an employer to indemnify his employee for anything that may happen during the course of their employment where uh, they can cause injury to another employee or someone who's visiting their premises, et cetera. I mean, for example, um, if you walk into a hangar to see how your aircraft repairs go and the layman has gone and put his toolbox in a, in a silly position or he's gone and dropped oil on the floor that you can't see and he hasn't wiped up and he you slip on it, crack your skull or whatever may happen. Well, it's clearly his fault. But the employer is required to indemnify that employee for any actions taken against him as a result of doing his business. So, again, that's all taken care of. That's just up to the employer. But your income protection or loss of licence, as it is in, in the aviation world, that is not necessarily the owner's responsibility. Um, the Under the pilot's award, um, the onus is on the pilot to first go purchase loss of licence cover and then seek reimbursement from his employer. Okay. Not the other way around. There you go. Um, the only other part of the award that affects insurance and pilots um, is to do with death coverage in the event that they die as a result of doing their duties, the employer is required to pay the next of kin um, or the estate an amount of money as stipulated in the award over and above any workers' compensation entitlement. Um, because workers' compensation death benefits vary from state to state around Australia. They're not consistent. Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, that makes sense. And that's why we come to you, and when we have these kind of questions, because you know uh, what's going on more than we do. <laughs> Glad to help. Glad to help. <laughs> uh, now, another another question about uh, pilot uh, indemnity type stuff has got to do with um, the whole CASA examiner insurance thing that was... A, on and off for a little bit there. Can you give us a bit of an update on what that is uh, going on there now? Because a bit of background from what I understand is that a fair few years ago before Part 61 came in, if you were a, uh, an examiner in Australia, uh, you would have coverage through CASA um, indemnifying you uh, from any accidents. Correct me if I've worded that wrong. But then when Part 61 came in, they put that onus on the examiners. It was a lot of money for examiners to start forking out for their own insurance. So they basically said, stuff you and I'm not going to do my examiner uh, you know, work anymore. And then we had a, a whole lack of examiners in Australia and then they kind of reinstated that. Is that how it all worked? And, and what's the current you know, process at the moment? 
The, the, the history, in fact, goes back um, much further than past 61. The ATOs, as they were then known, um, well, even going back before then, when I learned to fly and my testing officer for both my restricted and my private and unfortunately also my commercial was a gentleman by the name of Terry Quinn Jones, who was a lovely bloke. Oh, Kevin Dyer um, mentioned him in his interview years ago. So there you go. Um, he used to, apart from doing tests, he also used to write the travel section for the Korea Mail. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, lovely bloke. He was a POM, um, used to fly for the RAF, et cetera. Um, but back then, I mean, Dan, it was CASA who used to do the testing. Um, and and I have my thoughts on that, that if you get the right people, then if CASA, as the regulator, decides that you're good enough to hold a licence or not, then everyone should be judged to the same standard. And what happened was uh, CASA sort of relinquished and started to provide delegatory authorities to testing officers, approved testing officers or authorised testing officers. So you used to have these ATOs, and because they were a delegate, of the Department of Transport, um, DCA, or whatever they were before they became CASA, um, the reliance was that CASA would indemnify these ATOs, because they were delegates, for both professional indemnity and aviation liability claims that may or may not occur. And over a period of time, the premiums that CASA was paying for its own staff and these delegates for professional indemnity is becoming rather expensive. And as we know, CASA likes to cut costs as and when they can, and this certainly came under the microscope. Um, so even before Part 61, CASA was looking at ways to say to delegates, well, you need to have your own professional indemnity and aviation liability insurance. But the problem was, A, it was very, very difficult to find, and in fact, almost impossible some years. And the premiums that were payable by an individual was just horrendous, just horrendous. But as Part 61 started to come into uh, play, then CASA decided that well, we will not have delegates and ATOs anymore. There will be the flight examiner's rating and ATOs will transition over to that. There was a, a lot of debate and very heated discussion um, regarding the removal of that um, admin one cap um, to the point where CASA decided, um, as I understand it, to come back to the party where they would provide a revised cover, and I won't go into details, but it's not the same as they used to provide, but it's a revised cover for those flight examiners who transitioned from an ATO. But all new flight examiners, as you got your rating, were not covered under that new cap. And I believe that's still the case, that there has been no change. And that cap certainly does not cover any instructors. Um, any instructors be grade 
three, two or one um, have no indemnity cover for PI or anything um, from CASA. But those, no, but those grade three instructors, for example, would be covered through the flight training school, would that be correct, if they had a policy? Uh, if they have a policy, yes. Yeah. Right, interesting. Now, we are nearly 50 minutes into our conversation, Ian, and this is a seaplane podcast, so we've got to talk a little bit about some seaplane uh, insurance. Now, this is, probably, <laughs> this is probably a topic that could lead us, uh, as you mentioned, in a dinner time. Um. Why is seaplane insurance so difficult to get? And and I'll use an example of trying to get uh, seaplane training insurance as well. That you know you have uh, had a lot of experience with phone calls with me in the past few months trying to organise to be able to get a buccaneer to be able to do some seaplane training in Australia. Why is it so hard to get at the moment? And what things can we do in the future to to try and change this? That's a very good question. Unfortunately, it's a very long answer. Uh, You really need to go back to see the fundamental changes that have occurred in training over the past 30 or more years and also what the organisations are doing to try and push pilots through. Then, Then it's more complex than a simple answer. That's unfortunate. But if we go back, and you mentioned Kevin Bow earlier, I mean, Kevin had a fantastic reputation both as an operator and also as a pilot using his buccaneers, etc., out of Airlie Beach um, going back decades ago. And Kevin did his best to mitigate his risk by the way he trained and the types of pilots he employed. And what's happened since then, the training regime has changed where it's, I call it, softer. And also the, the risks that people are prepared to take and think, oh, that's the insurance company's problem, they've grown. So at one stage, I mean, as an operator, they required pilots to have so many hours um, total time. They required them to have so many hours on type, even before they got onto the water. Um, then so many hours in this dual instruction, um, ICUS. Um, the pilots were required to have a coxswain's ticket. Therefore, they understood that as soon as they put those floats on the water, they're a boat. And these are the rules you're going to have to apply to that operation, and reading currents, reading everything. Um, And that took a lot of experience. And the problem is these days there's not many instructors around with that sort of talent or that experience um, to be able to pass it on, which is very sad. Um, And and that's happening across the gambit, not just the float planes. Um, but even do you think of engineers uh, re- uh, trying to um, uh, repair rag and um, wire planes these days? They're just getting very difficult to find. And so what's happened is they've just got softer uh, as far as the risk mitigation is concerned and what they're trying to provide to pilots. Um, it's also got to a point where you know, pilots would go, oh, it's all too hard and walk away leaving the poor aircraft owner-operator without pilots. So how does he get the pilots back? Okay, 
will reduce the level of the bar that I would like to apply just so I've got crew to fly, fly my aircraft. It's a change of both what's happening with pilots generally and how they approach risk um, and what the aircraft owner's got to do to keep um, keep the doors open. So that that's where it sort of changed. Now, what happened in this cycle was that go back um, 10 years, maybe eight years, the insurance companies started to get very competitive and they themselves changed the way that they would view a risk. And they also reduced the bar of what they wanted. And this bar slowly over a period of years got lower and lower as into the total time they wanted, how much time on type they wanted, how much float experience they wanted, how much ICAS they had to do, whether in fact they needed a Coxwain's um, ticket, to the point where the risk factor just grew that the insurance company was wearing. And then over a period of 24 months, globally, globally, and also in Australia, they just got smacked with a, a lot of Float planes, seaplanes, floating hulls, claims, that, and they were very expensive claims. Um, having gone from a, you know, the old Beavers and the Lake Buccaneers into the Carans at sort of $2.4 million, um, into Mallards, et cetera, um, you know, it, the risk is there and um, they weren't getting enough premium income to pay for the claims that were occurring. That's the problem. Yeah, right. So the there was just too many accidents over over a period of time there and during that time they, they just weren't earning enough from claims to be able to cover that section of the industry. Correct. And and what they try to do is not cross subsidize. So yeah, if 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 the gliders, for example, as a as a group are having a bad run then their rates go up. The 172 owners' rates don't go up. Um, they don't cross-subsidise. So yeah. that's what they've done with low planes. They just had a very bad run. Um, and, I mean, there's, I suppose, people who would be listening to this podcast would be aware of a number of claims that have happened around Australia. And it's surprising how time over the, the period people forget and I could start listing about 14 or 15 right now, um, but I'm not going to start naming names. No. Um, and some of them were total losses. Some of them were in the press um, and got a lot of press. Others were very discreetly hidden. Uh, um, and the only people who knew were the insurance company and the owner. And others um, yeah, people would not be aware of. Um, but... If I was um, to do a very quick mathematical calculation, those um, hull claims would be somewhere in the vicinity of um, uh, one, two, four, in excess of $12 million. Wow. And, and that's, and that's uh, just in that, Australia that you're talking about, that's, not worldwide. That's, that's, where there's... No, that's, that's the Australian losses. Yeah, right. That's the Australian losses in, in a, over a period of 24 to 36 months. And that's, that's a lot of premium to get back. So the insurance companies 
have overreacted, in, in my opinion. But again, the operators and owners, having come from a soft time where they could get whatever they wanted, they asked for, the underwriters were giving them, to a point now where you can't have, you can't have. You know, they think they're being badly treated, whereas, as you and I have discussed um, over the, the most recent one, is there are ways to tackle the problem to show that remembering that all the insurance company you're doing is taking or wearing part of the risk that you don't want to carry. So what you need to prove to them is that the risk that you're asking them to carry, you have mitigated by either the training that you're doing, the hours that you want, recurrency training that you're doing, any ground schools, um, all, anything that you can bring to the party and they feel more comfortable about it, then that's what's going to entice them to come to the table. And let's, let's talk shop about giving you a premium. But having said that, all it's going to do is say they will cover you at price as opposed to at the moment where they're going, no, not interested. And where there are new operators coming into the market, um, I can tell you now I've um, tried to place five float plane risks in the last, since October. Two of them we were able to do but that involves six different insurance companies to get them 100% cover. The others, no. The, the maximum I could get on one was only 60%. Yeah, right. The other 40%, the other 40%, they would have to self-insure themselves. But again, the insurance companies are trying to look after their bottom line, that they're still around to be able to pay claims. And in fact, one of those underwriters that, that had a number of those float plane losses in Australia was Swiss Re and Swiss Re gave one month's notice of pulling up stumps and walking away from general aviation because they could not see a light at the end of the tunnel of where they could charge sufficient premiums to cover the claims that they were incurring. That's, that's pretty nerve-wracking I find because Especially if you, if we look at the seaplane industry uh, in its own uh, identity, I guess the fact that uh, insurance companies could literally just say oh, enough's enough. You guys, as a group, have just had too many accidents, and the claims way out um, outdo the premiums. So we're no longer insuring any seaplanes at all. Like that doesn't that's not a lot of confidence for for our industry in whole, is it? Like. No, but that, that hasn't happened and I wouldn't expect it to happen. Um, in the case of Swiss Re, they walked away from general aviation completely where they just won't touch any general aviation. Um, they're only doing airlines. But that's why the ones that will still do it are underwriting existing clients and they're trying to look after existing clients um, but you players into the market, as I mentioned, I've had five where two of them can't get any insurance. The third one could get him 60% yeah. and the other two I could get 100% cover. But I needed six insurance companies because not one insurance company was prepared to accept that risk. 
they just, at the end of the day, they've got to be there to pay claims. Um, and there's no point taking money off people, giving them insurance policy, and not being able to pay the claim at the end of the day. Yeah. So as a, as a whole, what can the seaplane industry do to try and pull back a little bit? Can we? Is it just... Is it as simple as saying you just can't have any more accidents and no more claims? Or can we start to implement other strategies like more more outside training for pilots or, or high minimums or something like that to say, well, we are mitigating the risk now and, and can we start to see some lower uh, policies because of the fact that you know, we're doing this extra stuff in the in behind the scenes? Well, all of the above. Um, and as I said, let's say if and I, I use this to people, if you could not buy insurance, what steps would you take to make sure that your assets are properly looked after? You are reducing the probability of having an accident, therefore affecting your assets and or your, your hip pocket, and also your reputation. Um, you know, the, the, most of your listeners will probably be aware of a couple of the claims that have certainly hurt not just the balance sheet of the operator, but the reputation that goes with it. And that's not just slow planes. That's, that's every operator. If you have an accident, then you've got a PR image that you've also got to look after. So getting back to... As I said, you take insurance out of the equation, you're not relying on an insurance company. What are you going to do to make sure that your hip pocket and reputation is not going to be damaged or tarnished? And that's the starting point. So whether that be, well, I won't employ pilots, you know, with, with 15, less than 1,500 hours to fly my 208, um, or, you know, they've got to have at least... 500 hours turbine experience before I'll let them let them fly the plane. Um, I mean, with no, no disrespect to commercial pilots, and we're all different the way we do it, but I've met some commercial pilots that I'd have trouble lending my motor motor to. Um, and yet I know some private pilots, these guys are focused, they're switched on, and they're very professional. Um, and, you know, but this hit and miss. It's hit and miss. Yeah, well, I was going to ask about, uh, I was going to bring that up actually because maybe there's the potential of a lot more availability for small flying boats, for example, uh, the Super Petrels and the Sea Rays. And now we've got, you know, little Russian Bore, you know, type style uh, two or four seat amphibious flying boats that you can buy that are probably targeting, or Icon's another one, that are probably targeting that private pilot market. But as you just mentioned, like a lot of these private pilots are generally professional in their own right of in their own fields and respect aviation so much that they actually dedicate a lot more of their own um, time to perfect their art in a way, uh, even though they may be low hours, whereas a lot of the commercial pilots may be thinking of their airline job and not so much having a lot of um, focus in on what they're actually doing at the time. That, see- that's possible. Yeah. yeah, that's possible. It depends on the supervision that they're getting, um, recurrency training, how much check-in training that, that they're getting done. 
Uh, I mean, I again getting back to to Kevin Bow. Kevin Bow would randomly just oh well, this you know we got this is going out. I've only got three passengers, spare seat. Good, I'll go for the run and see how he flies the plane. It's my plane. I want to make sure it's going to come back. Yeah. Um, and that's what that's what Kevin used to do. Um, and I know a few going back a long time, they probably don't have medicals anymore. But some of the pilots used to just be petrified that. Um, you know, that, that Kevin could be just jumping into the, their aircraft and going, fine, let's go for a fly and take these passengers and show them a good time. Um, and even one of them said to me, he said, wouldn't you know it'd be the day that I do my worst ever landing? <laughs> it would have been a good one if Kevin hadn't been on board, but, you know, it had to be the one when Kevin was on board. So, Dan, it happens. But as I said, so you take that step back that you're not relying on insurance what do you do? And then when you've come up with what you're prepared to do, that's what we then take to the insurance company and go, this is this organisation. This is how they've approached it. This is what we want from them. So it could be not only getting insurance, but improving both the premium that you're paying and the excesses that, that may apply. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, I know uh, one particular operator that, that is now sending their, their pilots for psych assessment prior to giving them a job. Yeah. That's so, you know, they're, 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 correct. Correct. Hmm. But I think that's what the industry needs to do. Um, and I don't think that, that there's any need to, need to scaremonger um, the, the likes of the major underwriters in float planes being Agile, QBE. Um, and one or two others, um, they're not walking away. Um, they've got long-term clients who, who have been with them as, as float plane operators, et cetera, and they will support them. Um, but as those people have noted, their premiums have gone up and they are getting more difficult with pilots, but th that, that will change. But to make the change more rapid, let's give the insurance company a program of risk mitigation that you're implementing to make sure that you never have to pay that excess on your policy. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what you need to do. Yeah. It's it's funny. It's, it's such a, there's so many factors that come into this and, and you know, evolve that situation. Like, for example, I think maybe even the, the, the fact that just before COVID, we were employing so many airline pilots, which just draws out that, that depth of um, knowledge in GA and all of a sudden you've got pilots with a couple of hundred hours getting jobs on beavers because there's just no one around. Um, um, that's probably a factor yeah. as well, you know. And and that's basically where the owner needs to bite the bullet and go, well, I've got to take. Well, no, you don't take that pilot. Um, you're, you're better off um, flying less hours because you've got less pilots and putting the wrong pilot in there, underperforming, low hours and is going to give you a bit of grief somewhere down the line. Yeah. Interesting topic, mate. Um, I, I don't want to t take up too much more of your time, but I want to ask, have you actually flown a seaplane yourself? Do you have a rating or anything? That lovely bloke down the Gold Coast who I, I'm pleased to say is a mate of mine, Peter Gash. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, Gash, he put me in the, the left-hand seat of a 208 on floats operating out of Broadwater. Yep. And said, Tady, it's just like a big 210, but it's even more docile. You'll have no problems. And I go, 
okay, we'll try this. So the first couple of circuits was was interesting. And then as we came in, there was either for the fourth or fifth one, this person in this um, in this yacht, I'd call it, just came out from between two boats and decided to go right where we want to touch down. This lovely big mast. And uh, all Gashi said is, and then he decided to go around. And I said to him, after we got back off of the plane, I went, what was that all about? Just weren't sure. I didn't know whether I should go around or just smack him and just give him an example or be more careful in future. I said, who, me? He said, no, the owner of the boat, but I know who would pay for it in the end, so we went around. so, so that's it. But no, no, I've, I've done a bit in the the uh, the two I ate with with Gashi. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, as I said, they were the days when he was operating out of the broad water, and he's yeah. moved on to much bigger and larger things now. Yep. No fan of the show as well. I've had an interview with Gashi in the past as well. Beautiful chat. Yep. Lovely um, bloke. I normally finish the question, uh, the interview with uh, splash and dash questionnaire, mate. This is like rapid fire seaplane questions. Obviously, you don't have a lot of actual pilot experience uh, in seaplanes. What would be a dream seaplane that you would like to fly if you had the chance to fly anything? Uh, it'd have to be the Malan. It'd have to be the Malan. Yep. Just it's a it's an all round aircraft. For, for, for multiple uses, um, and she just looks a magnificent aircraft. You'll have to come up one time, mate, and, and come for a burn. No, I've done the run down to Broome and back oh, in that, have? and that's why that's why I've got uh, it's on the list of if you ever want a job as a pilot, that's got to be one of them. <laughs> and I just can't believe people get paid to do that. Job. Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, oh, silly. <laughs> and it's in this year's calendar, isn't it, for you? For the aviation uh, insurance calendar, yes, it is. It is. It oh. is. There is a there is a mallard in that one. I submitted a couple of photos for you. You asked for them. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's obviously the probably the answer for dream seaplane job. Um, what do you reckon the ideal seaplane to fly no, around? No, 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 no. You oh, know, you said sorry. ideal plane. No, I didn't well, say the job. If oh, you want okay. to know the job, the job's working out of Early Beach or wherever, taking you know lovely tanned um, backpackers out to the reef. That's the job. <laughs> In Not the plane, but oh, that's right, the job. Okay, okay, right. Uh, well, uh, they used to do it in the Mallard out of the Whitsundays anyway. So true. Why they we, did. Why don't they we combine did. those two? All right. I'll leave. I'll defer that one to you. Okay. Kevin Bow. Imagine, imagine that back in the day too. Kevin Bow flying the Mallards out to the reef. Uh, young Kevin that, and Rod Johnston. That's, yeah, what a way to go. That's the dream there. Um, yep. Ideal seaplane to fly around the world in? <sighs> Again, it would be a, a well-fitted out Mallard just do the job so well. It would. That's sounds you know, Again, again, turbines, not radials, but turbines. Um, see, would be you could get anywhere you want to, make a fully IFR and uh, away you go. Yep, no issues with fuel being turbine. Don't need no. to chase av gas anywhere. That's, that's the no, to turn, to fit her out, turn into a side of a floating hotel and... Oh. Uh, Stop it. So you could never come home. <laughs> exactly. What about ideal seaplane to take out on a Sunday afternoon? You mentioned you had a cub. What about throwing that on the floats and uh, taking out for a for a Sunday afternoon? Ah, yeah, on a Sunday afternoon, I got other things to do. Right? I'm not allowed to go flying. <laughs> okay. I, I, I've got to be home cleaning horse stables. So, okay. uh, fair enough. But if I if I got that opportunity, then yeah, club on floats. Yep. Club on floats would be fantastic. 
Have you got any advice for anyone, any pilots wanting to get in the industry? Obviously, maybe consider insurance policies. <laughs> I don't know. What have, what have you well, learned over your over your time, mate, like to give to young pilots? Uh, damn, we were going to be here well after the midnight <laughs> on that one. Um, and it's, it's really a matter of um, just listen, listen very carefully to what, the old pilots have got to tell you because there's a lot of things that aren't in the syllabus um, and the good old quarterly crash comments. It's much cheaper and easier and less stressful to learn from other people's stuff-ups than to go through the process yourself. And if you're not learning from other people, then one day you will be in those quarterly crash comments. And over the, the 30 or 40 years that I've been in, in this career, um, there would be easy 10 who, clients who I'd call very close friends of mine who are now dead for taking shortcuts and doing things that I could not believe that they would be silly enough to do. Yeah, right. So um, that's the one thing in this job. You see lots of accidents. You see a lot of crash reports. The other things come across your desk and every one of them I go, don't make that a mistake that uh, my name will be attributed to. Yeah. It's funny that that old saying, isn't it? That you, what is it? you got a bag of luck and a bag of experience and you try and fill up the bag of experience before your bag of luck runs out. But I guess what you're saying there is basically you can fill that bag of experience before you either have to start pulling out of your own bag of luck, don't you? That's true. And it's the other one, you know. Um, what, what they say about a, a superior pilot, um, he's a pilot that never has to demonstrate his skills because he never puts himself into the position to have to demonstrate his skills. Yeah, right. Um, and that's basically, to me, what everyone, um, whether it's RAOs or whether they're flying airlines or anything in between, that's what they should all be setting out to achieve. Great stuff, mate. Well, I've really appreciated uh, your time, Ian. I know you're a very busy guy running uh, your aviation insurance company down there in Brisbane. But um, thanks very much for coming on the step and, and sharing all things insurance. Dan, my pleasure anytime. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks so much to Ian for taking the time to share his story and teach me and all of you maybe something new about a topic we sometimes don't think much of that's for sure and thanks again for tuning in folks it really is a pleasure sharing these stories to you all but until next time thanks for coming on the step